Well, you're certainly uh, familiar with the phrase, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm sure most of us have heard this, this famous quote at some point, even if we don't know who said it. Does anybody know who said it? I figured, what's that? You can read. Lord, Lord Acton, I should have made that smaller. <laughs> Lord Acton, an English, uh, he was a practicing Roman Catholic, uh, and he expressed this in a letter that he wrote to, uh, to an, arch, uh, a, 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 an archbishop. Um, and he was expressing his opposition to the Catholic doctrine of papal infallibility, which was being discussed in the 1870s. And in this letter, uh, Acton, again, a practicing Catholic, went on to say that great men are almost always bad men. Great men are almost always bad men, especially when an office or a position cements their authority. And he gave examples from history to support his point. And I think just this statement, uh, power corrupts, is something that, that probably rings true to most of our experience at some level, but power is unavoidable. We couldn't get rid of power if we wanted to because it exists in human relationships and organization. Furthermore, power is not intrinsically evil. God, after all, is the ultimate power of the universe, and He's all-powerful. He holds absolute power, but his power is not corrupt. And he created humanity in his image to rule, to exercise authority, to represent his kingdom reign on earth as it is in heaven. So power is not the intrinsic problem. The abuse of power is the problem. Unfortunately, that's what sinful humans tend to do with power. The prophet Micah ministered around 700, 750 B.C., sometime in that frame, and he addressed, among other things, the abuse of power in Israel during his day. Uh, a wealthy class had risen up during this time, supported by Israel's corrupt political and religious leaders, and they exploited the middle class and the poor. And God spoke through Micah and other prophets of that time, Isaiah and, and others. He spoke a series of difficult and challenging prophecies to the nation through Micah, a nation that had gone off the rails, spiritually speaking. He warned them that judgment was coming through this expanding empire called Assyria. Uh, if they continued to reject God's laws, uh, that judgment was coming, um, Chapter 3 of Micah is where we're at today as we continue our sermon series in this book. Uh, chapter 3 consists of three different oracles of judgment against the leaders in Israel. The first oracle addresses the political and civil leaders of Israel. The second addresses false prophets, religious leaders. And the third summarizes the problem with all of them, with the civic and religious leaders. All of these oracles prophetic oracles, all of them have the same theme. They're addressing the miscarriage of justice for personal gain. And collectively, they show us what God thinks about power gone wrong, but this chapter also suggests how God's people, including you and me, can redeem the power they've been given and use it for God's intended purposes. And so turn with me to Micah chapter 3. You can follow along on the screen. There are 
uh, Bibles in the chair racks in front of you. Micah chapter 3. I didn't look at the page number. If somebody's looking at a Bible in front of you, just yell out the page number for us. 757. Thanks, Laura. Micah chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter. This is the Word of God. Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today as we consider this passage, I want us uh, to consider the proper use of power. The proper use of power. We'll see that sinful power pursues personal gain, but godly power uh, pursues human flourishing. Sinful power pursues personal gain, but godly power pursues human flourishing. So let's consider the first point I'll call power corrupted. This first oracle, verses 1 through 4, addresses, as I said, the civic and political leaders of Israel, and it says that it is their duty to embrace justice. In other words, they were to so know God's word, his laws, his precepts, and, and, and celebrate them, delight in them, that God's word was in their bones, as it were. And they would lead wisely. They would ensure that justice governs all human relationships. But the problem was that they used their position and power for injustice. Verse 2 indicates that they hated good and loved evil. The polar opposite of what God expected the nation's leaders to do. In fact, down in verse 9, it indicates that they despised justice and they distorted all that's right. 
And then Micah gives us this savage, graphic metaphor of cannibalism to underscore the depravity of their crimes. I, I just kind of have to chuckle. When we did the public reading of Scripture last, uh, last spring, uh, my uh, middle school son got this passage. <laughs> I was just thinking, we're going to have a conversation when we get home. I... This metaphor suggests that the leaders were stripping away everything of value from the people. They were devouring their neighbors that God wanted them to love and to, to serve, to protect. Earlier in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then again in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, it explains that the powerful used their power to defraud other people. Uh, they defrauded them out of their homes, out of their fields, out of their clothing, and even out of their inheritances. And Micah is probably using this cannibalism imagery because it reminded the people of his day of their great enemy, Assyria. The Assyrian army was known for its brutality. It was not uncommon for them to flay the skin off of the captives that they had captured while they were still alive. They were a brutal people. And I think God, through Micah, is essentially saying to Israel's leaders that they're no different from Israel's enemies in the way that they were treating the people. Of course, the injustices that Micah saw weren't limited to his time. Many people today are speaking out about various injustices that we, that we experience even here in our own country. Different special interest groups are all seeking to lever, leverage power in order to advance their causes. And in, in many cases, there are real injustices that need to be remedied. People made in God's image are marginalized, or they lack access to services and opportunities that others among us have. In other cases, an immoral agenda is being advanced in the name of social justice. But, but whenever a legitimate injustice is exposed, and, and when people speak out against it and they seek to do something about it, they are lining up with God's heart. God uses His power to help the hurting. He expects people to use their power to help the hurting as well. And he hates it when people misuse their power to manipulate the disadvantaged. Now, we might be tempted to dismiss Micah's message as irrelevant for us. I mean, not many of us are, are political or civic leaders here in this room, but all of us have power and influence. And the same temptation, the same tendency that infects political leaders infects all of us. Pastor and author Stephen Um offers a working definition of misused power that I found helpful. He says, misused power is taking the influence that God has given you for the sake of the common good and using it against others for selfish gain. So we may not be rulers or politicians, but we all have a certain amount of power or influence and privilege. And so how do we think about that? What do we do with it? Micah's message speaks to any of us who think that our power, our influence, our privilege is for our own benefit. These are gifts from God, 
And God calls us to use them to be a blessing to others. Every member of a family has some level of power. I mean, uh, any moms in the room can tell us uh, that their infant children have power over them to do what they don't want to do every time they wake them up in the middle of the night when they're hungry. Kids, if you're older or bigger than your brothers and sisters, you can throw your weight around, can't you, to get what you want. If you're littler or younger, you've probably figured out how to push your siblings' buttons uh, to set them off and, and, uh, and perhaps to manipulate things so that your parents take your side. We all do this. How do you use your power at work? Do you ever feel that your Christian values just don't seem to apply to the way that business gets done? Do you ever neglect to share important information with your colleagues to, to keep your edge? Do you size up your coworkers' perceived value and worth and treat them differently based on how much influence or power they have? Do you make power plays based on your position or your tenure or other dynamics? Maybe your temptation isn't so obvious. There's a subtle area where we're tempted to use our power for personal gain, not as a blessing for others, and, and that's with privilege. Now, privilege is a dirty word today. A privilege is often associated with rich kids, or we might use the, the phrase white privilege. It's uh, tossed around all the time. And, and, and when the way that we use it, those with privilege are villainized. They're the oppressors, just by definition, and it seems that everyone else uh, is free to, to attack them without repercussion. There's a sociological theory called intersectionality that seeks to understand how these interlocking systems of power affect marginalized people, and, and the intent is to promote social and political equality. But it, it can be unhelpful by putting people in two camps, either oppressor or oppressed on the basis of race or class or gender or sexuality or any number of other categories, and this creates a whole host of other problems. Without getting bogged down into all of that this morning, I simply want to suggest this as we think about privilege. And it's based on uh, a statement Andy Crouch made in his book, Plain God. He explains that privilege is a special kind of power. He says, privilege is the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. Privilege is the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power from parents or ancestors or institutions that you're associated with or the like. So if your parents immigrated to this country and they worked hard to make a living so that you could go to a good school, that's a privilege. And that's a good thing. Here's the point. Even though most of us don't go around flaying people or defrauding them, in what ways might you think about the privilege you have been given purely in terms of your own personal benefits and not as a resource to be stewarded for the good of others, for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God? Are there ways in which you exercise your privilege subtly, which reinforces inequalities, inequities for those who don't have your same privileges? 
Sinful power pursues personal gain. Godly power pursues human flourishing. God's response to sinful power in verse 4 is to ignore the cries of the unjust when judgment that he has been warning eventually catches up with them. When trouble comes, their tendency is to cry out to God for help, but that cry to God for these people does not necessarily imply repentance. And so we have this irony, the magistrates who refuse to hear the cries of those that they oppressed uh, are not heard by God in His justice when He refuses to hear their cry because they refuse to repent and turn to Him. Israel's leaders also misused their power for profit, for profit. Just as the civic and political leaders misused their power to enrich themselves, the religious leaders did as well. And Micah makes this clear in the second oracle we see in verses 5 through 7. These people were charged with leading the people in worship, with teaching them the, the, the oracles of God, teaching them, encouraging them to obey the commands of God, to, to apply God's counsel. But Micah says they do the opposite. Verse 5 explains, As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but they prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. What Micah is doing here is he's suggesting that these prophets are feeding, feeding on the perks that people give them. And when they do that, they promise them success. They promise them prosperity. But if someone doesn't feed them, if someone doesn't pay extra money for their services, they stood ready to offer a curse instead. And someone was able to pay. Now, if we're honest, pastors and religious leaders in every age, not just in Micah's day, in our age as well, face the temptation to try to appease the crowd by softening the message so that it will be something that people want it to hear. There's a temptation to gather a crowd rather than faithfully proclaim God's truth. And you ought to demand faithful preaching and teaching from your pastors and spiritual leaders. You ought to pursue a faithful understanding and application of God's Word for yourself as well. God's response in verses 6 and 7 is that unfaithful shepherds will no longer hear from Him. If preachers refuse to faithfully deliver God's word, then God will no longer speak to them. Verse 11 summarizes this tendency of teachers, of leaders, I should say, whether they're teachers, religious leaders, political or civil, civil leaders, their tendency to misuse power for personal gain. It says, verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. The verse goes on, verse 11 goes on to explain their great presumption. Despite their wickedness, the leaders cover over it all with public expressions of piety. Micah explains in the second half of verse 11, Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come on us. With one hand, they reject God's justice. With the other, they embrace His protection because they profess to trust God, to rely on God. 
Their particular temptation, their particular presumption in Micah's day was to think that the all-powerful God of the universe is dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem, and so it would be impossible for any other nation to destroy them. They're immune from disaster because they think God is on their side. They're actually claiming a promise of God to his people. A promise that God made to Solomon at the construction and the dedication of the temple. When the temple was dedicated, God promised in 1 Kings 6.13 that he will live among the Israelites and will not abandon his people. And they latched onto that promise. But they ignored verse 12. The verse before that promise says this, As for this temple you are building... If you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. They claimed to hold on to God's word, but they took it out of context. They twisted it for their own purpose. Friends, isn't it easy to presume that God is always on our side? We latch on to some biblical promise. We take it out of context and we presume that God will bless us and protect us from all danger. It's easy to substitute religious activity like these leaders did for a growing relationship with God. You may think that you can simply attend church and check the box and leave unchanged assuming that God will bless you for it. It doesn't work that way. Or maybe because you volunteer in a ministry, or perhaps you get your theology right, you assume God loves me, He understands me, He's not concerned about my lifestyle choices that may not please Him. It doesn't really matter how I live, it doesn't really matter what I value because I'm involved in these things. Well, God's response to this presumption is in verse 12, and it's to warn the people that exile is coming. Therefore, because of you, Zion, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. God will hold them accountable. Jerusalem and its temple, God threatens, will be destroyed. But thankfully, God is a God of mercy, a God of grace. Exile and judgment isn't the last word. Even if it comes, when it comes, he said as far back as Deuteronomy and even in the very next prophetic passage in Micah, chapter 4, throughout the rest of the book of Micah, he promises that God will restore his people after exile. But even in our passage, there's a hint of redemption, an example for how to use power properly. And so let's consider second, power redeemed. And we see that in the example of Micah in verse 8. In verse 8, Micah is speaking about himself. He's not speaking about the false prophets. He says, but as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. It's really quite remarkable. In a culture that had abandoned faithfulness to God, Micah lived as a man of God. And that was possible because the Spirit's empowering presence in his life. The Holy Spirit motivated him and empowered him to stand up against the injustice that he saw all around him to call the nation and its leaders 
to repentance. And you know what? They listened. Jeremiah 26, verses 17 to 19, tell us how the king, Hezekiah, and the people responded to Micah's prophecies. They repented. They sought the Lord's favor so that these disasters would not fall on them. God warns us, friends, of judgment in order to motivate us to repentance so that we can avoid judgment and experience his blessing, the blessing of the gospel. And God empowered Micah's message to pierce their hearts. And King Hezekiah's response changed the course of Judah's history for more than 100 years, delaying exile for more than 100 years. It's important to see that Micah points beyond himself to a greater prophet. Jesus is the ultimate example of the proper use of power. Jesus, though he was God, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Unlike Micah, he subjected himself to the flagrant abuse of power, injustice by the civil and religious authorities of his day. And in contrast to them, in contrast to the religious and political leaders of his day, who Micah says built Zion with the blood of others, Jesus built Zion with his own blood. He used his power in love to lay down his life, to set aside his privilege for the good of others by dying on the cross in our place, to absorb the judgment that we deserve. Only love transforms power. Short of love, power corrupts. But motivated by love, power serves. And in response to the love of God in Christ for you, power can be redeemed by you as well. Jesus didn't abandon his power. He laid aside his rights and privileges to live for the glory of God and the good of others. And as his followers, we experience the power of his love, and it changes us from the inside out. The love of Christ, Paul says, compels us to live for the one who laid down his life for us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, We are who we are by the grace of God. And so a Christian is someone who increasingly comes to understand that all of their position, all of their power, the privilege that we have, whatever that may be, whatever extent it may be, all of it comes from God. We didn't choose where to be born. We didn't choose what race we would be. We didn't choose what socioeconomic bracket we would be born into. We don't choose our, our, our strengths, our gifts, our temperament, our, our skills. All position, power, and privilege that we have, whatever that may be, comes from God. He gives some people ten talents. He gives others five, others one. But no matter how many talents you have, so to speak, you're a steward of them. And so to the degree that you have power and influence and privilege, to that same degree you have the responsibility to steward all of that stuff for the glory of God and for the good of others. Sinful power pursues personal gain, but godly power produces, uh, pursues human flourishing. So use it in your family so that everyone is as healthy as they can be. Is there brokenness or dysfunction? Is there a relationship that's strained in your nuclear, your immediate, your extended family? Use your influence to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. 
Use it in your workplace to help create a culture that values people as made in the image of God, that creates a healthy team, that produces products and services with integrity. Use it in your neighborhood where you play, where you live, to encourage people, to see the needs of the community, to serve in the name of Jesus. And in so doing, reflect the beautiful, paradoxical leadership of the greatest king who gave his life for us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Passages like this are challenging, Lord. At first blush, we read passages like this, and it's easy to point the finger at others. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Again, encourage us where we need encouraged. Lord, encourage us that we can make a difference. We can influence for for you, for your kingdom. Lord, help us not make excuses for not doing that because we don't think we have influence. Lord, help us to use what we have. Lord, convict us where we need convicting, but make us more like your son. Help us to experience him and make us more like him. Let the world would be a better place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.